Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Old mill towns like Fitchburg and Lawrence, Massachusetts, are trying to remake themselves in a new image. We've already changed the way people talk about Lawrence. They used to talk about Lawrence in these whispered tones and like not so great intonations. And now they're like, wow, something's good maybe is happening up there. Maybe we should go check it out. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll take a look at what some so-called gateway cities are doing to provide economic opportunity. And we'll also consider how the high cost of rental housing can hold residents in some towns back. The, the share of these poor families that devote more than half of their income, more than 50% of their income to housing, housing costs has gone up over the last 25 years. We'll continue our series about the biggest issues facing each of the New England states this election season. And we'll remember an iconic New England restaurant chain as it fades from the region. I never cooked any food like that before. It changed my life. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Coming up, we'll ask reporters from Maine, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire about what they see as the biggest issues in their states as we head into the election. Now, I'm going to guess that the state of the economy might just lead that list. New England states have been recovering slowly from the Great Recession, and New Englanders have a gloomier outlook about their economic situation than the rest of the country. But here's the thing. In a place like Greater Boston, where things are booming, it can be easy to forget that nearby towns are still rebuilding. This week, we're taking part in the series A Nation Engaged, a collaborative effort between NPR and public radio stations to examine the state of economic opportunity in the U.S. We'll start with WBUR reporter Shannon Dooling, who visited two of Massachusetts' gateway cities, where communities are working to create their own economic booms. The hum of textile looms once filled the 19th century mill buildings throughout downtown Lawrence. Immigrant workers from Ireland and Germany were among some of the first laborers. Today, many of those mills are home to refurbished workspaces, buzzing with the sounds of artists, innovators, and entrepreneurs like Angie Jimenez, who's arranging pots and pans in the site of her future cooking classroom. I'm going to be teaching pies and cooking lessons, uh, cookies, different cookies for, for holidays so people can, you know, make their own and, and giving us a gift. Jimenez is a graduate of the business accelerator program Entrepreneurship for All, or e for all which says it's the first of its kind in the country to offer courses and training in Spanish. It's no surprise that such a program would launch in Lawrence, where just about 70 percent of the population is Hispanic. David Parker is CEO of e for all or A Para Todos in Spanish. He says after two years, graduates of the program have created 150 jobs in Lawrence and nearby Lowell, a key measurement of the program's success. Because manufacturing across the U.S. and certainly here in these cities in Massachusetts has declined, the immigrant communities still exist. There's social services to help people, people who speak your language, who have built neighborhoods now, except the jobs don't exist. 
New England mill towns were once global manufacturing hubs, pumping out cotton and wool products, attracting immigrant workers from around the world. But one by one, the mills closed when faced with factors like modernization and global trade. The unemployment rate in Lawrence is now among the highest in the state, a dubious distinction the city shares with places like Springfield and Holyoke, all former mill towns now known as gateway cities. On paper, it might not be the most flattering title. State law defines a gateway city as a mid-sized municipality where the median household income and rate of education are both below state averages. But Lawrence Mayor Daniel Rivera says there's more to gateway cities than those metrics alone. Lawrence is a place where people work. We've always been a place where people work. Rivera says he's proud of the city's immigrant heritage and the work ethic he believes accompanies those roots. He says owning that immigrant identity has helped shift the image of the city. We've already changed the way people talk about Lawrence. They used to talk about Lawrence in these whispered tones and like not so great intonations. And now they're like, wow, something's good maybe is happening up there. Maybe we should go check it out. Despite ongoing challenges, Rivera says Lawrence is poised for progress, and it's only a matter of time until people recognize the city as an affordable place to live and work. That's the hope in many of the state's 26 gateway cities, especially those just close enough to see the glow of the red-hot market in Boston. But looking at a recent report from the Mass Inc. Policy Center, it appears Boston's boom remains largely isolated from the rest of the state. Benjamin Foreman is research director at Mass Inc., a nonpartisan think tank. Foreman says that while state investment in gateway cities is robust, it lacks coordination, which hinders significant impact, especially in places south and west of Boston. The biggest story in Massachusetts is the pull of Boston and how everything's been pulled into the orbit of the city. And, and so to that extent, the closer you are to that action, the better off you are as a small mid-sized regional city in our state. Only 40 miles west of Lawrence, another gateway city is also planning a revival. So do we want to go back and maybe talk about some of the placemaking, sure. economic development Absolutely. aspects that we have? Fitchburg is a smaller city, about half the population of Lawrence. And today, a group of nonprofit leaders and city officials are trying to figure out how to infuse a little more vitality into Fitchburg's downtown. Mayor Stephen DiNatale, who took office in January, says the city's weak real estate market has yet to fully recover from the subprime mortgage crisis. So what does that mean? Well, nearly one in five homes in Fitchburg are underwater on their mortgages, according to real estate tracker Zillow. An old housing stock and crumbling commercial and civic buildings present another challenge, one that Mayor DiNatale says the city is addressing. Demolition. Uh, when, I, when I took over, the demolition figure for Fitchburg was about $30,000. Uh, this year, we're going to be spending close to a million. Dina Talley says that increase reflects a better system in place to identify blighted properties, as well as a renewed commitment to improving the community. That will take care of, in terms of removing some of those areas that, that bring a, a, a neighborhood down. I mean, the challenge is more of those buildings than we can than we can deal with. So we're going to chip away at it every year. Fitchburg, a city once known for its bustling paper mills, is also chipping away at a new identity. Some of that work falls on the plate of New View Communities, a local community development corporation. Walking out onto Main Street, New View Executive Director Mark Doan sees more than vacant storefronts and sparse sidewalks 
he also sees opportunities and success stories. We have about seven businesses just right in this little section of Main Street that we work with. So Brothers Barbershop, Luis started it on his own. He came in for us, got a technical assistance. It's impossible to get your hair cut there now because he has so many people with him. Heading north of Main Street, Doan stops in front of the vacant B.F. Brown School, New View's next big development project, which Doan says will be renovated into artist apartments. The old school is across the street from the Fitchburg Art Museum, an institution Doan says is integral to Fitchburg's sense of place. One of the things that we think of for Fitchburg, it is one of the cultural hubs of the area. It has the art museum, it has the university, and we want to build on that asset. This neighborhood in particular, it's one of the more diverse neighborhoods in north central Massachusetts, and that's another type of culture that we want to take advantage of because people who live here want to celebrate their own culture. Everywhere I look, and, and with every example you've pointed out, it's this melding of old and new, yes. of embracing the history with, a, with an eye on the future. That's what it is. I think all great places, it's not just the old, it's not just the new, but it's being able to accept that change as opposed to being afraid of that change. It seems Fitchburg and Lawrence are embracing change, recognizing their milltown histories while crafting a vision of their future as gateway cities. And that willingness to change may be one of the most important indicators of success. That's Shannon Dooling reporting. To see pictures of her trip to the gateway cities of Lawrence and Fitchburg, Mass., go to nextnewengland.org. The revival of former mill towns is a long process, and as Shannon reported, it seems the closer you are to the boom that's happening in Boston, the better off you are. And the same thing goes for cities in southwestern Connecticut in the orbit of New York City. But here's the problem. Economic booms bring high housing costs, sometimes far exceeding what lower-wage workers can afford. That's especially problematic in many of New England's coastal communities. As rent prices go up, assistance for those who can't afford those rents is not coming very fast. Andrew Flowers has been writing about this. He covers economics for 538. Andrew, welcome to Next. Thanks for having me. Could you tell us the story of Makara Meng? She's a woman you met in South Portland, Maine. Yes. Uh, Makara Meng is a single mother raising four kids alone, a little more than a welfare check. And uh, she had a very successful life through 2013. But in that year, uh, everything crumbled for her. Uh, her and her husband at the time uh, had a business. They ran an international grocery store in, in South Portland, Maine. They owned a home. Uh, but that year, uh, Makara's mother died of cancer. They lost the business, and her husband left her. He moved to Cambodia, where uh, she had immigrated from three decades earlier. So um, at, at the culmination of all these uh, bad events, she lost her home after owning it for uh, over 10 years. She is, is sadly illustrative of, 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 a, of a general point, which is that millions of Americans um, in the U.S. are struggling, and, and in particular, Makira is struggling to find affordable housing in South Portland, Maine. She and her four kids that she's raising live in a three-bedroom apartment. They spend about $1,500 a month, uh, utilities not included, on that apartment. And she's been on a waiting list for over two years now to get uh, housing assistance in South Portland. Uh, but she's still on that waiting list two, uh, two years in, and it's going to last up to five years before she actually gets help. And while the government has established several housing assistance programs, to help them, the vast majority of these poor Americans who qualify for the programs don't receive housing aid. And if they do, it, it's, it comes after years on a waiting list, uh, as Makara is going through right now. 
So, of course, one piece of this is the availability of housing assistance, whether or not you have to wait on a list for such a long time. But let's get back to the issue of just what affordable housing is. How is it defined exactly? In terms of affordability, uh, rents are rising, especially in expensive coastal cities. Uh, Wages um, are also, uh, for low-income workers, uh, pretty much stagnant for the past 15 years. So this creates a burden on the the household side in terms of the income they have and and what it costs to get housing and how the government defines this. So this is the data data that backs it up. They define a household as being burdened by housing if they spend more than 30% of their income on housing costs, including utilities. And what we know is, at least through 2013, which is the, the, the latest data we have available, that only about 20% of, of, of poor households, that is those earning less than uh, $20,000 per year, only about 20% of them meet that, that threshold of affordability, meaning, meaning that they spend less than 30% of their income on housing. And this problem is getting worse. The, the share of these poor families that devote more than half of their income, more than 50% of their income to housing, housing costs has gone up over the last 25 years. So we have this really you know, uh, stark contrast between poor families uh, who spend a large share of their income on housing and it's getting worse with middle class and affluent families that uh, m- the vast majority spend less than 30% uh, of their income on housing. And then there's supposed to be housing assistance that would help people get through tough times like these, or if you lose a job, you have medical expenses, and and you end up needing to to rent an expensive place, an expensive town. But as as you've said, that housing assistance doesn't come very quickly or easily. No, it, it doesn't. Uh, and it's an interesting a mix of, of programs that uh, a family like Makira would approach the government to, to get assistance with. You know, so one program is Section 8, which is a voucher program that allows uh, a family that qualifies to get a voucher to then take to the private rental market. And uh, that voucher will pay any housing cost above 30%. So that, that they can pay up to 30% of the housing cost, and then the government will pay the rest through that voucher up to a, a fair local rate, a maximum rate of, of rent. Um, now, the problem with that program is that funding is essentially has been flat in recent years. So while it serves about 5 million people, that hasn't grown much over the last 10 or 15 years. The second program, even, even though it's smaller, it's public housing, actual government uh, built and administered units. Now, those only, public housing programs only serve about 2 million people uh, across the United States, mostly in dense urban cities. And actually, uh, that program, too, is, has kind of stalled out. It, the number of units peaked in 1994 and really has, has declined a little bit since. So one of the, the struggles for someone like McCara is her life's already been turned upside down, but, but she tells you, you know, I, I want to stay in South Portland, Maine. I want to stay in this relatively expensive coastal city. And in some ways she's stuck because she doesn't want to move, but she might not be able to afford to stay. Exactly. It's it's a real conundrum because uh, as I profile my story, Makara has her kids in the school system there. You have close community and, and social ties. You're trying to find um, maybe a better job for yourself in, in that city and you don't want to leave. But at the same time, if it's an expensive city, it can be hard, especially for you know a single mom with four kids. It can be really hard. And so how the, how the government through these housing assistance programs tries to deal with that is, well, number one, they vary the fair local rate that you're uh, allowed to get through the Section 8 voucher. So in New York City, you're, you're allowed a bigger voucher than you are in, in say, you know, rural Kentucky. And then also in, in, in the more dense cities, 
the public housing authorities are likely to build actual public housing units to, uh, to assist people. But the problem with in either scenario, if you're a family like um, Makira uh, and her kids who are trying to get affordable housing in, the, in an expensive city, the problem is even if you qualify for these programs, there's just an overwhelming amount of demand. So what I calculated is that two-thirds of families at or below the poverty line, they don't receive any housing assistance at all. So, so most people think – and I think this is pretty profound. Um, most people that I spoke with about this story think that, oh, if it's like food stamps, if you qualify for this part of the social safety net, you're just going to get it. It's, it. But it's not true with housing. It's not an entitlement. Um, for many of these families, the issue isn't that they don't qualify for help. It's just that the help they need isn't available. So only you know a third actually get help. About 17 percent get a government subsidy through, through Section 8. They get a voucher. About 50, another 15 percent uh, live in about in, in public housing, and a very small percentage of these people actually get rent-controlled units in dense cities. But overall, two-thirds don't get any housing assistance at all, and it's creating an affordable housing crisis for low-income Americans. Andrew Flowers is an economics writer for 538. Andrew, thanks so much. Thanks so much. Coming up. All right, we've established that coming out of the recession can be hard in New England. We'll ask political reporters how that issue and others will be playing out this November. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. If you watch national political coverage, you'd think the entire balance of the U.S. political system will be decided a couple hours south and west of us in Pennsylvania. Of course, there's always Ohio and Florida. Those swing states get all the attention. But there are big issues at play in New England states as well, and there's at least an outside chance that some of these states will be in play during the upcoming presidential election. Last week, we heard from political observers in Rhode Island, Vermont, and Connecticut about the big issues facing their states this fall. Today, we'll turn to Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Maine. Felice Bellman is politics editor at the Boston Globe. Felice, welcome to Next. Thank you. Nice to be here. Also, welcome to Casey McDermott, a reporter for New Hampshire Public Radio. Thanks for joining us, Casey. Thank you for having me. And Bill Nemitz is a columnist for the Portland Press-Herald. He joins us today from Portland. Thanks, Bill, for being here. Hi, John. Nice to be with you. Now, earlier in the show, we heard a report about gateway cities in Massachusetts, uh, cities with an industrial past that have low incomes, but uh, places like Lawrence and Fitchburg, Mass., are, are running some programs that invest in entrepreneurship, especially for immigrants. They're, they're trying to recover from uh, years and years of slow economic growth. Uh, I'll ask you first, Felice, we know Boston is booming, but is a sluggish economy a concern in this election year for the rest of the state of Massachusetts? You know, it's funny. That story felt very apt. It really feels like um, a tale of two very different parts of the state. If you live in Boston, as I do, 
There's such a building boom. There's cranes overhead everywhere you go. We had a story just today about how a big new uh, restaurant is having is likely to have trouble finding enough workers because there's a worker shortage here when it comes to the restaurant industry. And it's completely different in what they call those gateway cities. And so how does that play out in an election year in, in Massachusetts when you have people in Boston who maybe don't see what's going on only a, a couple hours to the west? I think it means people are voting on on very different things. You know, people in gateway cities may be thinking much more about their own pocketbooks versus people here who are worried, you know, the economic issues are very different here. It's how am I going to pay for transportation? How am I going to pay for the high cost of housing in in the Boston area? Housing prices and rents are, are so much higher than in those other places. And so the concerns for voters are different. And it means that the politicians in various parts of the state are having to respond to much, much different concerns from voters. And that's another story that we're telling this week on on the show, this idea that housing costs, Felice, are so very high as this economic boom happens in Boston and goes into the suburbs in this greater Boston area. It really is great if you're one of the ones making a lot of money, but I'll bet you there, there are a lot of people who can't really afford the rents or the housing costs that are the new part of the norm in eastern Massachusetts. I think that's right. And you see people who are employed in the city moving farther and farther out um, to find some place that's affordable. Yeah, one of those places that people are moving further out to is is southern New Hampshire, Casey. How much is the economy an issue in your state, and is there a real difference between the southern part of New Hampshire and, and the rest? Yeah, I think there's a big difference. Um, if you talk to economists here, I think they'll tell you maybe not a tale of two New Hampshires, but a tale of kind of several New Hampshires. And in particular, there is a big divide between the southern tier where we have cities like Manchester, Nashua, um, to some extent up along the seacoast that are seeing a little bit more kind of uh, economic growth. Um, you're seeing those cities work to kind of attract high tech, STEM fields, uh, advanced manufacturing, things of that nature. Um, but when you get farther north, I would say, you know, north of Concord, north of the central part of the state, um, a lot of those cities and towns up in the northern part of New Hampshire really have yet to fully recover or meaningfully recover in any way from the recession. Um, a lot of them were hit very hard. They were home to, you know, mills, other industrial centers that served as the anchors of those towns for, for quite some time. And one of the big kind of puzzles facing, you know, our next governor, our other state leaders is how do you preserve the quality of life in those areas while also giving attention to other parts of the state where they're looking to kind of attract maybe, you know, high tech firms. So I would say that that is definitely kind of a major question hanging over our governor's race in particular. Bill, in all the economic analysis of New England that I've been looking at, it shows that Maine is trailing pretty far behind in median incomes. Uh, It's near the bottom in poverty and in employment growth. Are people talking about the state of Maine's economy as we head into the elections? Well, I think people are always talking about that up here, John. Um, And like New Hampshire, uh, we've had this uh, dichotomy between the two Maines. The, The issue here really breaks down to between Portland and the greater Portland area, and by and large, the rest of the state. Right now, for example, we have a newly proposed waterfront development project here in Portland that's totaling around $250 million. And a lot of people are very enthused about this, and it has all kinds of uh, support here in Portland. But you don't have to go very far outside of Portland to find an economy that is largely moribund. As you get up into the northern part of the state, of course, the paper industry, it's been a litany of one closure after another as the mills either downsize or shut down altogether. 
like we heard before, it's almost like you're looking at another state. And that has its political implications as well as we head into this election. When you talk about the prosperous and heavily populated uh, greater Portland area, Bill, is is there a sense that it could become in some ways a a mini Boston that you might begin to see more of the state benefiting from clearly some some real economic growth that's happening right there in that city? Well, that's been an argument for some time is that, you know, there's there's kind of a built in resentment politically toward Portland. Uh, if you go up to Augusta and, and listen to some of the more rural legislators, so anything with the Portland label on it kind of has two strikes against it going in. And the counter argument to that is very much that Portland is the economic engine uh, that drives much of Maine's economy right now. So, yes, I think that as Portland prospers, so will the whole state to some extent. But I don't think that's going to bring a lot of solace to the mill worker up in Millinocket who, you know, lost his job after years working in the paper mill and has no real prospects uh, going forward. A lot of people aren't realizing that benefit themselves, and that perpetuates this kind of resentment that they're getting the short end of the stick. Well, that resentment nationwide has been playing out in many ways in the strength of the Donald Trump campaign. A lot of people who feel like they've been left behind by the modern economy have turned to Donald Trump. I'll ask you first, Bill. I mean, you have a governor, Paul LePage, who is, has aligned himself in some ways with Donald Trump. Do you see people in Maine starting to talk about, here's a guy who's at least addressing some of the concerns we've had for some time? Yeah, we have a governor who claims to have been Donald Trump before Donald Trump was Donald Trump. And and I'm sure everyone's aware of some of the headlines that Paul LePage has, has generated. But what I just described in terms of the two mains is playing out very much in the presidential race. Polling has so far suggested that for the first time, Maine might split its electoral votes. It's one of two states that can do this, where we have four in all, and the winner statewide gets two, and then the winner of each congressional district gets one. We've never split them before, but there's real reason to believe that in this election, Donald Trump will win in the second congressional district up north. We have some polling coming out this Sunday. I haven't seen it yet, but so far it looks like he is going to carry that part of the state and and perhaps quite handily. And it's for that very reason. It's because he's become a lightning rod for this largely economic frustration and sense of hopelessness that a lot of these people have. Maine could be the one place in New England where an electoral vote actually goes to Donald Trump. All right, Casey. Well, I guess it's time to talk uh, electoral politics in New Hampshire. Uh, Across New England, there aren't a whole lot of really, really interesting national races, but you have one in the Senate race uh, with incumbent Senator Senator Kelly Ayotte and sitting governor, Democrat Maggie Hassan. What are people talking about around this race and, and what do the polls show at this moment? Well, right now it's a very, very tight race. Um, I think the the last few polls have had them basically in a tie. Once we knew what the matchup was going to be um, or what the likely matchup was going to be between Senator Ayotte and Governor Hassan, I think everyone expected this to be a very hard fought, very um, expensive race. And what you see with Ayotte and Hassan, I've heard other people describe it as kind of a race to the center because in their respective parties, for the most part, I think that they're both relatively well-liked. They have a base of support. 
But what they're really playing for right now is the kind of undeclared independent voter that is you know, kind of quintessentially New Hampshire. So you see a lot of bo- a lot of them talking up their kind of bipartisanship. You see Ayotte stressing the fact that she's worked on issues with the Democrats in the Senate. You see her kind of talking up various issues where she may have kind of broken with the party line in terms of the environment, other issues like that. Hassan, for her part, one of the challenges that she runs into is on national security, um, just given her background mostly in state government and AOT's experience in the Senate, having sat on a number of kind of national security oriented, foreign policy oriented committees. That's kind of where Hassan is trying to kind of build up her credentials in this race, which is becoming more and more focused on kind of foreign policy issues or national security issues. But 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 hold it, a race to the center, people talking about how moderate they are, how they work with people uh, across the aisle. That's not what we're hearing in the rest of the, the nation right now. I, I think that speaks to kind of the dynamics in New Hampshire. Um, you know, this is a place where people do have to kind of work across the aisle to get things done. We've had a divided legislature in terms of having a sitting Democratic governor, Republican legislature for the last several years. Um, you have Republicans and Democrats. They don't get along on everything, but to do a lot of kind of meaningful policy work, they do have to work across the aisle. And that's something that when I'm talking to voters out on the trail consistently, not just this year, but in the past, that's something that a lot of them say they want out of their elected officials. Now, you, of course, also now have a governor's race because uh, Maggie Hassan has jumped into the Senate race. You know, NHPR had a very nice piece recently Uh, Casey, about just how weak the governor's job is in New Hampshire. It's kind of an interesting outlier. But despite that, it's still a very important job. Who's running for governor in New Hampshire? And what what has that race been like? It's interesting. We actually have two relatively young candidates for governor. I I believe both of them would be the youngest governor in, you know, in decades for New Hampshire. Um, Colin Van Ostern is 37. I believe his uh, his Republican opponent, uh, Kristen Nunu, is in his early 40s. They're both young dads. They both come from this body called the Executive Council, which is somewhat unique to New Hampshire. It's this five-member group that acts as basically a check on the governor. And that's part of the reason why our governor is so weak is because he or she always has to kind of bring forward their appointments or other kind of big high profile issues. They have to get the approval of this council before they can do anything. So you have, as I said, the Democrat Colin Van Ostern, who comes into the race with not a lot of political experience before serving on that council. On the other side, you have Kristen Nunu, a Republican whose name is probably familiar to a lot of people who have followed New Hampshire politics. His dad was a governor. His brother was a United States senator from New Hampshire. Um, He also has not held political office before serving on this executive council. They differ on a number of issues ideologically, but in terms of biography, I think it's going to be kind of interesting over the next few months to see how they both try to kind of brand themselves as this next generation of New Hampshire leadership, which is something that we've kind of heard from both of them. Felice, walk us through some of the interesting ballot questions that Massachusetts voters have to grapple with. It it brings up some very interesting issues for the state. That's right. We don't have um, really any big election races this year, but what we do have here is four ballot questions, and some of them are getting national attention. 
Uh, Massachusetts is one of several states this year that's looking at legalizing recreational marijuana. And there's a lot of national money pouring into that debate for advertising. So we've spent a lot of time reporting on what has been the experience in the early states that have already legalized pot and, you know, what are precautionary tales from those states and what are, what are some of the upsides. So that that's, that's a big story we're following. Another is um, the notion of expanding the number of charter schools in Massachusetts. And it's really a hotly contested issue here. There's a cap on the number of new charter schools that can be um, started every year in Massachusetts, and this, this ballot measure would lift that cap and allow a dozen new schools every year. In this way, Bill, some of these same issues are cropping up in Maine, especially whether or not legalized pot is coming to your state. So talk about the ballot issues there. That's right. We, have, we also have a uh, legalized recreational marijuana referendum on the ballot. We currently have medicinal marijuana in Maine, but this would expand it beyond that. And that's generating all the debate you'd expect you know, on both sides. It's, it's going to be one of the more hotly contested issues uh, going forward. Uh, but we have several others. We have a universal background check for gun sales uh, referendum uh, on the ballot this year. That, again, is drawing a lot of NRA attention and, uh, on the other hand, is polling very well throughout the state, which is surprising because in the past, Maine has largely been viewed as kind of a gun state, and uh, this kind of thing has been a non-starter. So it's going to be interesting to see if the numbers start to even out on that as we approach the election. There hasn't been a ton of advertising on it so far. That That's a big one. We also have uh, a uh, ranked choice voting referendum, which if passed would make Maine, I believe, the first state in the country that would uh, conduct all its uh, statewide referenda uh, via via ranked choice voting and that too is attracting a lot of attention and uh, we we also have an educational funding referendum and of course an infrastructure one five of the six questions on the ballot in Maine right now are citizen initiated and there's a sense that the reason we have such a high number is because Maine uh, legislatively has been so deadlocked between the Republican governor and usually a split legislature in recent years, that it's been very difficult to get anything of any substance through the legislature. So one citizens group after another has taken it upon themselves to put these things on the ballot. And uh, so it's it's making for a very lively referendum season. What's been the argument to legalize pot in the state, Bill? Well, basically that, uh, you know, it, it, it comes down to a debate over the science and, and whether or, you know, how harmful is it or isn't it. The, the, the police chiefs have, have come out against it. Uh, the uh, marijuana groups that have been, that really have been around here largely since many years ago, uh, 10 or 15 years ago when Maine passed medicinal marijuana are saying uh, it's time to just do away with, uh, with this prohibition. They point to the fact that the so-called war on drugs has largely been a failure and also point to Maine's uh, substantial opiate and uh, you know, heroin and other opiates problem as indicative of where the real problem is. And they feel like if we can just put aside marijuana and start going after these uh, truly harmful drugs, that uh, we'll have more uh, success in tackling Maine's real drug problem. So, and then we get in, of course, they argue the tax benefits and, and the revenue and all that that this might generate. But it really, it's coming down to that basic question, and that is, 
how, how harmful is marijuana? What can it do to you? What can't it do to you? And the battle of the uh, scientific studies that's inherent in that, as both sides say uh, they're on the right side of science. Well, well Casey, and I'll, I'll turn to you finally on this. The question of opioid addiction is something that's been an enormous problem across our entire region, probably in New Hampshire as much as any place. How much has that played into this election season? And I guess I'm wondering if it's something that's being talked about in this governor's race and also the Senate race. Oh, it's definitely being talked about. I think um, you, you hear the politicians using this, you know, and I don't want to say that, that that they're not genuine in their interest, but, you know, really digging into this issue as a way to tell their constituents that they're paying attention to this very serious crisis that is facing the state. Um, you see them touring recovery centers, um, speaking out about various kind of policies or other issues regarding opioid prescribing, um, opioid kind of uh, law enforcement regulation around heroin and other drugs. Um, So you see a lot of kind of signaling around opioid issues. um, But when it comes to actually kind of differentiating between the candidates on this, um, I don't hear a lot of voters saying, well, I'm going to vote for this person specifically because of his or her stance on the, the drug crisis. I think it's something that across the board, there's bipartisan agreement that it is an issue, that it's something that politicians need to pay attention to. Um, and there's even a lot of bipartisan agreement, at least at the state level and at the national level, in terms of you know policies or other things that they would like to see enacted to, to fight this issue. But when it comes to being kind of a deciding point for voters who are between maybe candidate X and candidate Y, um, I don't hear a lot of people saying, I'm going to vote for this person because they said this about the drug crisis. Felice, do you think that the opioid crisis that's happening in Massachusetts, as well as the other states, actually might have some sort of an impact on how this ballot measure on marijuana turns out? Well, you know, it's funny. The, the politicians here are using it in just the opposite way than how Bill described it in Maine. Some of the most high-profile politicians in Massachusetts have come out strongly against legalizing marijuana. And what they say is, we are in the throes of such a terrible opiate crisis and heroin crisis. Why would we possibly take on legalization of marijuana? Felice Bellman from the Boston Globe, Casey McDermott from New Hampshire Public Radio, Bill Nemitz from the Portland Press-Herald. Thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. Great to be with you. Coming up, New England says goodbye to Howard Johnson's. It's next. Your uncle Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. I grew up in Pittsburgh, and to get to visit family or the beach on the East Coast, we had to drive across the entire state of Pennsylvania, and it is a long state. One of the things I loved about that drive, though, was the chance to stop along the PA Turnpike at Howard Johnson's. My favorite thing on the menu? Fried clam strips, an exotic delicacy for a landlocked child. I wondered why they were always on the menu there. Well, it made sense when I later learned that the restaurant chain started as a seaside stand on Wollaston Beach in Quincy, Mass., where clams, along with rich ice cream and hot dogs by another name, helped to make the place famous. 
The story goes that Bostonians came to love Howard Johnson's when Eugene O'Neill's strange interlude was banned in Boston, and theatergoers went south to Quincy to see a performance with a dinner intermission at the Howard Johnson's across the street. At its height, there were more than a thousand Hojo's locations with those iconic orange roofs on highway rest stops and dotting the neighborhoods of New England, New York, and points beyond. On the road around the corner, here's the place to go. The orange roof of Howard Johnson's. Join the folks who know. Good food, good fun, kids count too. 28 flavors just for you at Howard Johnson's. Next stop. It's Howard Johnson's for a famous grilled and butter Frankfurt in a toasted roll. Or a choice steak, charcoal broiled the way you like it. Sizzling on the outside, tender and juicy on the inside. Howard Johnson's is famous for fried clams. Tender, sweet, deeply crusted and golden brown. Crispy, crunchy, sweet as a nut. And ice cream from the wonderful world of 28 flavors. Made with fresh cream, fine ingredients. An ice cream soda, cool, luscious. At the landmark for hungry Americans. Howard Johnson's. Next stop. That's from a 1962 ad. But if you think a fondness for Hojo's is all about nostalgia, think again. No less a culinary expert than French chef Jacques Pepin is a big fan. Here he is talking about it on his PBS show, Heart and Soul. I work at Howard Johnson in Queens Village, New York, from 1960 to 1970. It was exciting. We made new recipe, improved old one like using butter in the clam chowder roux and fresh breadcrumb for the fried clams. We made the so-called Philadelphia roll, those rectangular rolls with the, the opening on top that we use nowadays for, for hot dog. We browned them on both sides in butter and filled them up with buttery lobster piece. I'd never cooked any food like that before. I learned a lot and grew there. It changed my life. But times and dining habits change. Last year, Maine Public Radio reporter Jay Field visited the Hojos in Bangor, Maine, when it was one of only two left in the country. He spoke to a few customers. At a corner table, Wendy and Roger Bossy are enjoying one of Hojo's signature dishes. They weren't probably not supposed to be eating fried clams. The Bossies, who drove down from Aroostook County, stopped at Hojo's for lunch before Roger's cardiology appointment. It's become a ritual for them. If you're going to die, die happy. A few tables away, another couple gives the waitress their order. I'm going to have the French toast with uh, sausage. All-day breakfast is just one of the things that Joyce Traigner loves about Hojo's. Traigner lives in Old Town. We lived in Ohio for quite a while, and uh, there was one that we used to go to when the kids were growing up. You know, we'd take them there for a special treat all the time. So I hate to see them go. And the fact that there's only two left, I mean, it's, uh, it's just like everything else. You know, you get used to something you've grown up with all your life, and uh, it's gone. And now there's only one left, and it's in Lake George, New York. That restaurant in Maine, the last Howard Johnson's in New England, closed earlier this month. It's now part of a large family of what Walter Mann would call Hojo Ghosts, a shell of what once was. Mann is a Howard Johnson enthusiast from New Haven, Connecticut. He runs a website called Hojoland.com, and he joined us to talk about some of the restaurant's rich history and legacy. Walter Mann, welcome to Next. Well, it's great to be with you here, John, on Next. Who was Howard Johnson? Howard Johnson was a guy who, um, in the early 20s, uh, basically had borrowed a, a little bit of money to operate a small 
uh, corner pharmacy up in uh, Wollaston, which is near Quincy, Mass. And uh, he was able to pay back that money pretty quick uh, when he found out uh, ways to make uh, real good ice cream. And, uh, you know, the people lined up for that ice cream. It was so good. And, uh, you know, he ended up uh, opening up uh, beach stands along the shore there and doing very well and and then really kind of pioneered the idea of uh, opening up uh, franchise uh, versions of of his creation, the Howard Johnson's Restaurant. Uh, In 1929, the first one opened uh, in Quincy, Mass., and did very well. What exactly was the restaurant market like back then? I mean, we we think about iconic restaurants that are so ubiquitous now, like McDonald's, right? It's everywhere. But but how did Howard Johnson start and spread and become this this family restaurant that seemingly everyone who grew up in this part of the world knew about? I think he really pioneered it because, you know, he, uh, to him, the important thing was quality. And to assure that, um, he ended up starting uh, kitchens effectively that that he, that he created that would make all the foods for the continuing expanding amount of franchises of Howard Johnson's restaurants and so there there was always that level of quality because the food was manufactured up in Massachusetts and was then shipped to the restaurants and uh, you know it would be uh, heated up in in the kitchens and uh, but it was it always had that good quality and i think that you know, maybe that was something that that initially set him apart from from others, because you could go to any orange roof and know that you would get the same quality meal, uh, you know, for an affordable price. And uh, I think that was something that really set him apart differently than uh, from others back then. You talk about the orange roof. Where did that design idea come from? How did that become the symbol of the Howard Johnsons? Well, you know, that's something that uh, there's a lot of debate on specific, you know, specifically why he came up with that idea. I think the general feeling is is that he felt that having that um, bright uh, porcelain enamel uh, orange roof really would would you know create a signature iconic uh, look, much like um, you know McDonald's with their golden arches. Uh, way before the golden arches, he thought that a, a bright orange roof would kind of be the beacon along the highway for for travelers and and for, you know, just uh, families as well. There are a couple signature food items. You mentioned that it really started with ice cream. A lot of people make ice cream. A lot of people sell hot dogs. But from what I understand, I didn't realize this, that you weren't allowed to call them hot dogs in the stores. Right. Well, he came up, you know, the ice cream, first of all, was was, uh, he had doubled the butterfat content. Um, You know, that was back... Back when, nobody was worried about uh, their arteries. But, uh, you know, so that's what kind of made it uh, so good. And then I think, uh, yeah, as far as the hot dogs, uh, he insisted they be called Frankforts. And the hot dogs were grilled in butter. And the buns uh, had a little butter, and they were they were grilled as well. And, uh, you know, that's how uh, people really became uh, enthralled with, with his uh, Frankforts, as he called them. One of their, you know, key signature items. Obviously, there's there's no debate on that. Was the was the fried clams? They actually got from a, a company uh, called the Safran Brothers uh, that actually uh, sold him those fried clam strips uh, or or the foot of hard shelled uh, clams. And uh, that was just uh, such a tremendous uh, item. They had that, and of course, uh, you know, other things like the macaroni and cheese, and certainly the New England clam chowder, which uh, everyone loved. There's a hotel chain called Howard Johnson's, and I guess I'm wondering what the history is there, because I think an awful lot of people who, who maybe never ate at one of the restaurants know it as a hotel chain. 
Is it the same Howard Johnson? Basically, the company that was founded by Howard Johnson uh, was turned over to his son, Howard B. Johnson, in the 60s. And he ran it, some later on say uh, not too well, but uh, by the late 70s, he had sold it to a British company, and they tried to resuscitate it but didn't have uh, luck. And then, of course, uh, uh, Marriott ended up with it, and they basically just wanted the the real estate and closed a, a good portion of the restaurants and then uh, ended up with a company called Prime Motorins, which became Wyndham Worldwide. And uh, so Wyndham is, you know, the owner of the of the Howard Johnson name and the brand, and they do have not only the hotels, but they also own the, uh, the rights to the Howard Johnson's name in terms of food and ice cream. And they would be the ones that would license the name if, for example, an, a new entity came up that uh, wanted to reopen. And, the, and there are those that are trying and have tried to reopen the restaurant chain and, and, you know, start manufacturing the ice cream again. But ultimately, that would be up to Wyndham whether or not they would uh, license that, uh, that again. One of the best things about your site, I think, is the memories that people share. Do you have some that stick with you, either personal memories or memories that people have shared on your site about, about why they love this restaurant chain so much? I just think in general most of most of them point to um, more innocent times, and I think uh, you know they point to times where people would be traveling with their family and and uh, you know they would they would look for the orange roof and and you know they would know that they would get a good meal at affordable prices. The kids would have the ice cream to top off the meal at the end, and uh, I think it just evokes a, a, a more uh, innocent time and, and a time that, you know, a lot of people long for, and, and of course, great memories with their family, with their parents or the grandparents and what have you, and I think that's missing from today, uh, unfortunately. So, Walter, what was your order when you go into a Hojo's? What, what did you what did you get? Uh, New England clam chowder and uh, probably mac and cheese or uh, maybe a grilled Frankfurt. And uh, I have to tell you that I did spend the last night at the uh, Howard Johnson's restaurant in Times Square, which closed in 2005 after 46 years. When I went there, I spent uh, about an hour uh, deciding. I tried to just make it last that night. And so I spent an hour deciding what I was going to get for my appetizer, ordered my soup, took an hour. Then I decided, uh, okay, I'm going to take some time to order my dinner, took another hour, and then the same thing with dessert. So I was able to spend three or four hours uh, in that restaurant with that with those bright, uh, glowing neon lights in Times Square that last night, and it was, uh, it was just a, a sad but a, a great night to, to top things off there. So, Walter Mann runs the website hojoland.com, the last Howard Johnson restaurant in New England closed earlier this month in Bangor, Maine. Walter, thanks so much. John, thank you. To see pictures of Howard Johnson's restaurants of years gone by, visit nextnewengland.org. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrew Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Production help this week from Galen Koch and Annie Sinsabau. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio Network, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR. This is your last chance for the Howard Johnsons. Get your steam flames stationed on the night. Check your gas and